0: Welcome back to another edition of The Alonzo Bed. We're your host, Ty Merritt.
1: And I'm Sam.
0: And we have another great episode for you guys tonight. We are getting back to basics. We are headed back to the stat corner, going to round up some MLB news. And we are, of course, going to bring you info from the NBA and the NFL, but that's going to take up a much shorter time on the podcast today. Sam, why don't you give the viewers the long-awaited rundown of the stat corner that they've been missing?
1: Sure thing. And I know, you know, we hear people clamoring, why did you guys stop doing Stat Corner?" And there are a couple of reasons. One is that we ran through basically a lot, almost all of the main sabermetric stats that we wanted our listeners to understand. I think if you listen to every Stat Corner we did in maybe our first 20 episodes, you would have come out of it a very educated, analytically minded baseball fan. Know- or at
0: least we, we hope so. Maybe we're giving ourselves too much credit, but we hope that that's what we did.
1: Exactly. We, we hope that we sort of gave you the bread and bugger to understand the conversations going on in baseball analytics. The second reason was baseball season started back up, basketball season started back up, football season started back up. We had so much you know, week-to-week information that we wanted to talk about that we didn't really have time for Stack Corner in our episodes. But things are sort of dying down again. You know, the baseball season's over. The basketball season's over, although it will be starting in a in less than a month.
0: The football so weird, season. so weird to think about.
1: The football season is in full swing, but now we have some time to get back into the meat of baseball stats. And because of that, we're coming in with a baseball stat. The one that we're going to talk to you guys about today is something called pitch value. We're basically It's going to build on some things we've talked about before, notably the RE24 stat, which was run expectancy 24 for you guys who who don't remember. But basically what we're going to talk about is how we can assign a run value to every pitch that happens. And then what we're really excited about is we're going to talk about a really cool way to visualize pitch value data in the swing take visuals tool on Baseball Savant. So... If you guys are listening to this podcast now, I would recommend sort of sitting by your laptop, sitting by a computer while you listen to this episode, because we're going to try to work with some visuals. We're going to tell you how to get to these tools on Baseball Savant and sort of walk you through how to read them. They're, they're just an incredibly, incredibly cool way to parameterize sort of what types of batters and pitchers there are. And I think it's going to be a really interesting discussion.
0: I will also say really quickly um if you are like, oh, I'm going to wait to listen to this till I get by my computer, but you have your phone handy, um, the main tool we're going to use is Baseball Savant, and that actually has a pretty nice mobile website. Um, so a phone will work as well, a computer would be nice. Um, but if you are driving in a car, maybe save just the StatCast portion for when you get home, because we really do think that um, following along with us um, on the website will improve your experience. So um, let's just jump right in really quick with the news so that we can uh, get to the Corner that we're so excited about. So From the NBA, Sam, I'm really only bringing one thing to the table that I want to talk about. If you want to throw a couple extra ones out there, that's fine. But for me, the only thing that really happened this week uh, in the NBA, and I know it's been 10 days, we're sorry, guys, but roughly this week in the NBA, um, is the Washington Wizards go ahead and ship out John Wall plus a first-round pick um, for Russell Westbrook. And what I'll say really quick before we even discuss is that the headlines may deceive you folks this first round pick is protected totally in 2023 um it's top 12 protected in 2024 i don't really understand how they you know got that to happen top 10 protected in 2025 top 8 protected um in 2026 and then after that if they still don't have it they just take two second rounders so it's a first round pick but unless one of these drafts is deep and the Rockets like continue to win enough to stay out of these protected positions, it's not as nice automatically as a first, or sorry, the Wizards. It's not n- as nice automatically as a first round pick looks in a headline. So I'll just say that.
1: The Wizards are much less likely to convey a protected pick than the Rockets are, as long as the Rockets have James Harden. Right. Correct. And, yeah, I mean, the the thing I'd have to say about this trade goes is basically an exchange of two of the worst contracts in basketball. Um, You know, John Wall, of course, coming off of injury. I I still think Russell Westbrook is probably the better player, but, like...
0: As reflected by the deal, right? Like, we just talked about a shitty of a first-round pick it is, but obviously the two teams could agree on that point.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think Westbrook's still a better player, but, you know... I, it's sort of a net zero to me, like, you know, whatever. Um,
0: I, will say I, I actually strongly disagree, but go ahead. You say, you, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You say what you want to say, and then I'll get my point.
1: I will say the biggest winner of this deal is all the moronic franchises around the league, including the Licks, who are now <laughs> not able to trade for both of these players because there's some time limit on how long players uh, have to wait to be triggered. <laughs>
0: That's such a funny take. I love that. Just the thought that both of these players are absolutely toxic. And there were a bunch of rebuilding franchises in the league thinking maybe this is their opportunity to jump in. Um, So I've mentioned my feelings about Russ on the show before. I actually even think I've mentioned my feelings about John Wall. So I won't go into those too much. They're both just to sum it up. um, Not really guys that you build around to win championships. um, But With all that aside, I actually think this is one of the most fair and like mutually beneficial deals I've seen in a while. I think the prices were totally fair because I don't believe that Russ is a better player than John Wall, but I do believe that the uncertainty with John Wall's latest injury warrants this super-protected first-round pick. I think that Westbrook is going to fit better – in Washington, where Bradley Beal is truly a second fiddle, right? He's not James Harden is the fiddle man. Um Bradley Beal is a better second fiddle um than than James Harden was, obviously, and even than KD was when he was on the team. Um obviously he had no one the year after, but and by better so on the,
1: you mean he's more able to play like an off-ball role.
0: That yeah, that's correct. Um, and then on the flip side, while John Wall does command the ball a bit more than I understand, than I think can work with James Harden who needs the ball like all the time. Um, I think he fits better on the team. Like John Wall is not the same type of, I'm going to force my shot hundred percent of the time. I am going to force myself to score. I need to dominate the floor and Russ's style. I love, like, I don't like, I don't like Russ as a player that much if I'm a franchise owner, but I love his style, the way he plays so hard with so much intensity, but it doesn't really fit with the way that the Rockets do all the time. And so I think the fits improve for both teams. I think the value is equal. So I get why you say it's a net zero, but to me, it's actually positive, positive. Like everybody comes out of this trade better.
1: Yeah. I mean, the one thing I'll say is that, you know, I, you know, I'm obviously, I've, I've been a big rust detractor on this podcast. I still think Russ can get on little mini like eight to 10 game runs where he can just be like a massive difference maker and just win games for a team. I don't think John Wall can do that same thing. Uh,
0: no, but that's the point. That's exactly why they fit better. Like the, Uh, The Wizards, I think, are for sure making the playoffs next year because Russ, we forget it, but like Russ is still a dominant basketball player. He is a tremendous, tremendous basketball player. They have almost 0% chance of winning the finals, but they're making the playoffs next year. Meanwhile, the fact that John Wall cannot create that absolute game-dominating atmosphere is why he is good for the Rockets, because he doesn't try. Russ is always trying, which means he is always doing too much, always taking too much of the ball, always thinking about how he can take the game over. John Wall doesn't play like that. He has his shortcomings, whatever, but he doesn't play like that. So fit-wise, that, I think that speaks to my point.
1: Yeah, okay, I, I, I'd agree with that, I guess. I will also say, though, that like I do not think Russ is the best player on the Wizards now. Like I still think that is Bradley Beal, who had, I think, like a really incredible breakout season this past year. The Wizards were, were a mess. But Bradley Beal, I think really – I'd love to see Bradley Beal go and be, like, a number two on a really good team because I think Bradley Beal is, like, insanely good. And I think he's better than Russell.
0: I agree from, like, a player analysis position. But I think basketball – and I've, I've mentioned this feeling as well before. I think basketball has more – there's more intangible value in basketball than there is in baseball. And what Russ brings to a floor intangibly, I think is more important for winning than the edge he has over Russell Westbrook in performance efficiency. Cause he's certainly the more efficient player. Um, he's certainly the more refined shooter. No question. He's a more efficient scorer, but that just speaks to the efficiency. Um, Russ, I still think is a slightly better defender, although Bradley Beal made unbelievable strides this season defensively. Um, but my point is that Bradley Beal, and he showed it this year, is really unable to take over games. Well, right? I, like, he, he could he could score at a tremendous clip, but he could not take a game over. You've you watched the NBA, and you know it's different. I don't know. Like,
1: his, like his supporting cast is, like, not even, like, a professional sports team.
0: So I, You're going to slander Thomas Zataransky like that on this podcast? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's just oh, like- my God. DC gang pulling up next week with the Thomas Adoransky slander. Um, <laughs> bold, that, bold out of you.
1: I think we're digressing a bit. Uh, we could talk about Bradley Greer at another time. Let, let's move forward so we can we can get to the, the, the meat that we promised the listeners. Good point.
0: Like, we obviously have this discussion all night, so good call. Uh,
1: so then uh, the other small piece of news we're going to talk, we should maybe talk about is just that, the NFL is in a dire position when it comes to the coronavirus. The Ravens somehow play the game despite having like 25 people in their organization test positive over the previous week. They're starting. And there
0: were fans in the stands. Yeah,
1: they're starting quarterback Lamar Jackson. You know, tested positive. Uh, I don't. You know, I would. I would have said. You know, if this had happened a few months ago, I don't see how the season finishes it's become clear that none of these leagues really care that much about, you know, Agreed. about Agreed. safety. It's just about the money. And the Bowl is going to happen this year. I, I have no doubt with my mom. Uh, well,
0: honestly, Sam, I think it's a reflection of the fans, right? Like I just said, you know, they knew that 25 um, players on the Ravens had COVID. There's been one more to get it since the game. And There were still fans in the stands, and I guarantee that if they had just opened up ticket sales, maybe it wouldn't have been a sellout, but maybe it would have, and it would have been damn near close if it wasn't. The leagues, and, you know, on the one hand, I'm like, how could they? You know, how could they disregard the people? But on the other hand, it's like they're a company, and they're going to do what they do. Um, The leagues are going to push this envelope as far as they can. And the NFL has made it clear. I saw someone tweet the other day. The NFL's made it clear they're not going to cancel games, you know? And someone tweeted uh, a timely reminder that the NFL hasn't canceled a game this season. And I think it was Jeff Passan responded to it and was like, is that supposed to be a positive? <laughs> like, you know, because there's been like four or five games that for sure should have been canceled. And they were just like, well, we're just going to play them. There's an
1: interesting dynamic here, which is that, Apparently, if a if a team forfeits a game, then uh, the players don't get paid.
0: So that for that game, so there's wait wait wait. What is that? This season specific, or that's a long standing NFL thing? I, I guess I'm
1: not I'm not sure it's ever been an issue in the past.
0: But yeah, both both teams' players or just the team that forfeits?
1: Both teams.
0: What the f- French?
1: Yeah, you're allowed to curse on this podcast.
0: Yeah. But I, I, I just, I love my friend.
1: <laughs> um,
0: yeah. So I,
1: that is, I think probably a dynamic in that, like the both teams have a, a heavy incentive to want a play.
0: Yeah. Wow. That, well, that's super interesting. And thank you for bringing that up because it's something I didn't know. Maybe it's something our, our listeners didn't know either. Um, but that, that really throws a wrench in the problem and we'll have to see how this plays out, but I would be shocked if uh, they don't finish the season. Let me let's just talk though, really quick. Like you mentioned, Lamar had COVID. Well, so did Mark Andrews, J.K. Dobbins, Mark Ingram, and James Conner, who were all supposed to play in the same game and are all like big names. And then to take it a step further, so did Every single quarterback, all three quarterbacks on the Broncos. So they end up starting a guy they drafted to play wide receiver from Vanderbilt, who's like way deep on their depth chart. They're starting him at quarterback. And first off, let's just think about how ridiculous that is. Like the NFL said, sorry, you guys have to go out and play this game, even though maybe some of you are infected and it may not be COVID safe. But also we're taking away all of your quarterbacks. So you have to go throw some random guy out there.
1: I was for, for that game. Anyone who's like watched the football game and and thought you know, you know maybe I could complete a couple passes at quarterback, Kendall Hinton was a state champion high school quarterback.
0: and played quarterback at Vanderbilt, which is an actual d1 school. He went
1: one for nine with two interceptions. and honestly like I'll say like I'm you know I've, I've watched the game and thought you know, you know, if a guy's wide open, maybe I could hit him. You, apparently, no, you can't. It's, it's really, really hard to play quarterback, and people underestimate what happens when you have four 350-pound guys uh, running at you in three seconds.
0: And I, thank you so much for saying that because it's such a great point, and I was not even cogent enough to, like, grasp it while I was watching that game because – and you know this, Sam, but I'm going to tell our listeners – I had one of the most frustrating betting weekends in history last weekend. I played a bunch of Thanksgiving promos um, where like I had to bet like five or $10 on a Thanksgiving game, whether it was Dallas or um, the other one was the Texans. And in return for being a first time user on three different sites, I got $100, $125 and $100 on the three sites respectively. So I had a bunch of crazy free money to play with. And by the way, I hit every single free bet. So let's just keep that in mind. I had a bunch of free money to play with and I made some long shot bets. I made some safe bets. Two of the safe bets I made involved the Saints. One was very simple and and, and very easy for me to comprehend. It was a little parlay with some other game that I don't even remember because it hit. So it's not in my memory. That one hit, it was earlier in the day. I was just waiting on the Saints game. I needed, Alvin Kamara to have uh, 54 and a half rushing yards. So I picked the over. I need him to have 55 rushing yards. He finished with 54 rushing yards, Sam, and the bet cost me $120 if I had, well, it didn't cost me because it was a free bet, but if I had hit it, I would have made $120 if he had run for one more yard, if they would placed the ball one yard further on any of his runs. Then to make matters worse, I had another stupid parlay and I took the over. I thought, "Wow, this is crazy. 34 and a half is the lowest line I've ever seen." I understand the Saints are starting Taysom Hill, I understand the Broncos don't have a quarterback, but still the Saints could score that on their own. It's so simple. The Saints can score that on their own. The final score 31 to 3. And for those of you at home who are not great at arithmetic, that's 34 For the under on a a 34-and-a-half line, that game, folks, cost me $125. So now that we're counting, that's $245 I've lost just on the Saints. And I lost some other heartbreakers this weekend that we don't need to go into, but just the Saints. And so I couldn't even see that great point you made because I was just so tilted by the end of the game. Those are are
1: two of of the worst bad beats that, that I can remember. And, you know, we've both been been burned by the Saints the last couple of weeks because, a- as I said on our last podcast, I lost my fantasy matchup because of Taysom Hill's ability to play in the tight end spot. Aaron believed strongly that this should be allowed. And then <laughs> ESPN said, no, that's not allowed anymore. So I, I was, of course, the victim of the, of the one week that this was ever allowed to happen. Uh, so, yeah, we both had some- And
0: honestly, I'm not mad that ESPN made that decision. I understand it. I'm mad that it now allows you to play the ultimate fantasy victim for the rest of the season, because no matter how the season turns out, that one week where you played against Taysom Hill at tight end will forever haunt you. And And, and I'm going to, I'm going to give you that dub, by the way, that's, that's yours to keep.
1: And to all our listeners uh, who've been following along our fantasy season, Aaron and I have now both clinched being in the bottom four playoffs to be the loser of the league. Uh, Both of us are going to be in there. Aaron's team is coming on strong, but he's, he's mathematically eliminated. My team. I
0: just beat the, I just beat the best team in the league this week.
1: Yeah. My team is, is is crashing at the absolute worst time. And honestly, I don't want to see you in the playoffs, Aaron.
0: No, you wouldn't even if you were in the winner's bracket. My team is good. And I've been saying it all year long. It's an unbelievable (laughs) tragedy that I'm at the bottom, but. I'm not worried, frankly, because my team is really good and has been all season. Well, not
1: all season, but but let's uh.
0: Well, they haven't performed well, but they've been good. Um, all right, all right, that's enough of all that. We promised you guys uh, a great stat corner here, so um, we're gonna get into it right away, and we just want to say um, this is a little bit more in depth than what we've done in the past. Um, which is why we've encouraged you guys to, when we get to the data visualization part, to follow along on your computer, your uh, phone. But we think that it's really, really valuable. Um, And it's it's a great way for you guys, because it's complicated, but it's not that complex. Not that much more than RE24, which we explained in the past. And by the way, we'll link the episode where we explain RE24 to you guys um in the description for this episode so if you want a little like primer before you get into uh pitch value go ahead and listen to that because it's going to set you up great just go straight to the Statcast. it has all the tags in the description go straight to Statcast um and listen to that because that'll help you out here but this is a great way for you guys to transition from like okay here's some numbers that tell me cumulative performance maybe they're normalized to leagues parks other players whatever um And this tells me kind of how a player performed and also expected values. Taking those two things and kind of, even though this doesn't really use expected value, but it incorporates some of those ideas, putting them together and giving you a way to think about specifically what type of a pitcher a pitcher was, what type of a hitter a hitter was, where they did their damage, what they were looking for. And this is the first layer of Sam and I were talking a little bit about this before the episode, this is the first layer of what we think is going to become a more and more, uh, I guess, evolved way of looking at pitcher batter matchups. And we're, of course, trying to move to that point where you can take a pitcher and a batter and you can make some predictive game. Uh, you know, model for what possible outcomes there are and what the likelihood of those outcomes is, which would be, of course, invaluable to teams. So with some, that,
1: uh, some people might call that stat, you know, a travesty. They might, they might say that this is the end of baseball. You got to play the game. Why are we trying to, to even break down the, the most fundamental part of baseball, a pitcher and a batter battling? We're trying to predict what's going to happen this is
0: baseball. well. Let the kids play. And what you'd say to that person, Sam, as you know, is it doesn't matter if this stat exists or not. The player's still got to go out and play. And it's still going to be the manager who knows how to get the most out of his players, whether he's using that tool or a different one. Um, that wins at the end of the day. So we tell that guy to uh, shut the hell up. But with that said, Sam, I need you to take us on a little run here. Of uh, pitch value, what it means, how we calculate it, um, and some of the implications from it.
1: Sure. So in the past, we discussed run expectancy twenty-four, and basically, what this stat does is it looks at the run value of every state base state. So you know how many outs there are. So three possible outs: zero, one, or two. And how many combat? How many? What? How many runners are on base? You know. Person on first, person on second, person on third, first and second, first and third, second and third, bases loaded, bases empty. There are eight base states, three out states, so that's 24 total states. And you can average over for each of these states in baseball, on average, how many runs is that worth in the inning? And basically, what RE24 did is it said, let's look at the outcome of the at bat, see how the base states change, and calculated the number of runs that the, you know, a context sort of, a, a more context-neutral than RBI number of runs that
0: resulted out of that at thing Now, what pitch value does is it takes that- Well, really quick, Sam, before you go into that, can you just tell us again, and I know this is going into RA24 a little bit, but just in like two sentences, can you tell us how that more context-neutral than RBI stat for runs is produced?
1: And uh, the, the way it's produced is basically adding, you know, just summing over every at bat you have. So let's say you hit a home run with uh, the bases loaded and two outs. Now, you might say that the average outcome of the bases loaded with two outs is, say, you know, one run or something. Uh,
0: I don't know if that's exactly it's zero. It's zero point. Uh, bases loaded, two outs is zero point eight point. Zero uh, point eight runs. Let's use that because I don't.
1: I was close. I was close. So let's say on average that situation is worth zero point eight runs. And then you hit a grand slam. So now what's happened is you've changed the base state to uh, no one on base and two outs. I assume that's not worth much, maybe point one point two runs.
0: Exactly point one point point one runs. I'm sorry.
1: So now the difference in the state is 0.1 minus 0.8. So that's minus 0.7 runs. But you've also added four runs to your team. So basically, you're going to be credited with 3.3 runs in RE 24 for this. Four runs for the runs that were actually scored, and then minus 0.7 for the change in, in base state. And that's how it's calculated for every at bat. Uh, similarly, if you had, let's say let's say you had popped out and the inning was over, you'd just get minus 0.8 because you went from 0.8 expected runs to zero runs in the right,
0: inning. Right, because your team's no longer at the plate. You can't produce runs.
1: So that's how, that's how it's calculated for an at-bat, and it's, it's just summed over all at-bats for, for each one. So now let's talk about pitch value. And pitch value takes the same, co- same concept, but instead of trying to calculate it on the at-bat level, what it does is it tries to calculate it on the pitch level, and the way it does this is it basically realizes that hey, there's some there's some value to having a good versus bad count. So there, you know, if you take a ball, uh, that's going to increase your sort of run expectancy because you're in a better hitter's count. Whereas if you take a strike, that's going to decrease your run expectancy because you're in a better uh, pitcher's count. And to put some numbers to this, uh, if you say a zero zero has like zero run value versus average, then an O2 count is going to be worth minus 0.1 runs versus a 0, 0 count. So let's say I, uh, and then a three O count is going to be worth 0.2 runs over, uh, over a 0, 0 count. And uh, so, then, so then if you consider, let's say, in a two O count, that's worth 0.1 runs above an average count, And then a 3 0 count is worth 0.2 runs over an average count. So let's say you took a ball on 2 0. Then the pitch value of that ball is 0.1 runs. Similarly, we can now uh, basically, instead of having 24 states, there's going to be 24 states for different types of balls. And then 12 states, sorry, 24 states for different types of outs and runners on base. And then 12 states for different counts. So you can now merge these two things together to get something called RE288 with the 288 possible states. And you can assign a run value to every single one of these states. And the way a pitch value is calculated is just by saying you have a state before the pitch, you have a state after the pitch. Let's calculate the difference in run expectancy. And that's a pitch value. Anything to add to that, Aaron, or, or, or do you think I covered it?
0: Um, I, I just want to point out again to our listeners, um, because we've harped on this before. So remember that those numbers that you're getting, like say a, uh, let's just stick with R A 24. Cause we've explained it a couple of times. And it's, I think the more simple one to understand, um, that number of like 0.8 run with, uh, two outs in the base is chucked. That's calculated over a certain sample size. So in the case of RE24, I think the sample size is year to year, if I'm not mistaken, because there's so many events um, in a given year. And then it could be a five-year bin, though. But just remember that this is is normalized to the entire league's production. So they look at every event that occurred with bases loaded, two outs, and they said this position for teams – is worth on average 0.8 runs, which means all the times this occurred, all the teams scored a total number of let's say N runs or R runs and it occurred a total of N times. And if you divide those, you're gonna get 0.8. So basically one out of every, or four out of every five times that uh, somebody came to the dish with two outs and bases loaded, in this in the bin that we're using, whether it's a season or five seasons or whatever, um, a run, one run was scored.
1: The so uh, the other thing I wanna you, you reminded me, the other thing I wanna like be clear about as far as pitch value goes, is when we're talking about the value of an 01 count, for example, we're not just talking about the value of a count that ends on the 01 pitch where the bagger puts the back in play on 01. We're talking about the value of all at bats that at one point were 01. Because, like, the the at-bat's always going to finish once you get to 0-1. So, like, just to be clear, like, we're talking about the – yeah. So, basically, it's that. We're talking about the value of the at-bat past a certain point, not at that point.
0: So, for example, if a batter goes 0-1 and they go 0-2 – the result is factored into the calculation for the 01 count and the 02 count. Likewise, if they go 01, 02, 12, it's factored into all four scenarios exactly. because we're looking at the total um, output of a given event. So with that, and just I, because this is a little bit more complicated, You know, I even had to have Sam walk me through a little bit of it because I I skimmed the page thinking it would be enough. It's not because it's a little in depth. Let's summarize this really quickly. There are 24 possible um, permutations or conditions of runners on base and outs in an inning, three possible outs and eight possible um, formulations of runners on the base paths. There are 12 possible counts in baseball. If you multiply the counts by the number of conditions, you get 288. So there are 288 different out, base runner, and count situations that a runner or that a batter can find himself in during a game. By looking at the outcome of every single one of these conditions, putting them together and normalizing, what we can do is say, a batter or a pitcher was this good or this bad at saving or preventing runs in this given scenario. Now, this is the point, now that we've done a little summary, Sam's explaining it to you guys in depth. um, And of course, this is the time I want to remind you guys, if we didn't do our jobs up here, if we didn't explain something well enough, um, if you want to get more in depth with us, if you want to learn more, make sure to reach out to us on Twitter at the Alonzo bet or shoot us an email, the Alonzo bet at gmail.com. Um, we'll expand on this. We'll discuss with you. We'll interact if you're interested. So with that, this is a time that we're going to ask you guys. Um, if you have the ability to get near a computer or a smartphone, please do so. We'll give you a second to pause. If you need to, you know, run up from your bed or your couch or whatever. But with that, let's get into some extremely, extremely cool visualizations of this data that have been done on StatCast. And uh, don't forget StatCast and Baseball Savant. Baseball Savant is a service from the MLB that utilizes StatCast, which is a pitch and swing and fielder tracking technology used by every team in the majors now. Um, And they create stats based on it. And the guy who does this is Tango Tiger, um who has a blog about all these things we're talking about today but if you guys go to statcast actually sam why don't why don't you lead him there because i'm going um, <laughs> to i'm definitely going to send him on a goose chase you know the website way better than i do all
1: right so you're going to you guys are going to want to start by going to baseballsavant.mlb.com once you're there there's going to be a top bar click on the visuals tab Once you're on the visuals tab, I want you to scroll down and then click on Swing Take Visuals. If you click on Swing Take Visuals, it's going to take a second to to load. It's going to say loading Swing Take data. And then you're going to see sort of a summary of some pretty cool data. You should see Mike Trout, right-handed hitter for 2020. At the top left, you're going to see a little summary that says plus 18 run value. And basically what that is, is that's the sum of the pitch value that Mike Trout generated on all of his pitches in 2020.
0: And for if we didn't do a good enough job explaining earlier, I'll tell you guys right now. For a hitter, you want to be positive. For a pitcher, you want to be negative because you want to be taking away runs as a pitcher. You want to be producing them as a hitter.
1: Exactly right. And zero means you were an average hitter or an average pitcher. So Mike Mike Trout was was 18 runs above average uh, in terms of the sum of his pitch values this year, and as we've and Sa-
0: Sam before you before you explain the charts here, explain uh, because I realized we didn't totally do it in the segment. Explain how that that value is generated. There's really two outcomes on every pitch, right? You can swing or you can take.
1: Yeah, exactly. So one way you could parameterize your your pitch values is you'd say there's Uh, one pitch value is you either took the pitch, as Aaron said, and it was either a strike or a ball. Or basically you're going to have a positive pitch value if it was a ball because of the change in count to a more hitter-friendly count. And you're going to have a negative pitch value if there's a strike because of the change in the count to a more pitcher-friendly count. And that's really where like these RE-288 values come in. And then if you swing and you make contact, then the pitch value is basically going to be generated by – looking at the the change in run value with your RE24, but you're also going to have to subtract off the sort of the value of the count. So in that sense, you're going to get more, you're going to get more credit for hitting a home run on an O2 pitch than a 3-0 pitch because exactly. you're in a worse situation on O2 than you were in 3-0.
0: Exactly. So with that, we'll walk you through a little bit of the visual here um, if you're on this, I'm sure you're looking at Mike Trout to the far left. What they've done on uh, Baseball Savant here uh, between Tango Tiger and Darren Willman—did I get that right? Yeah, Darren Willman is is does
1: an incredible job, basically taking all of this Statcast data and creating great visualization tools, such as what we're looking at now.
0: And um, what you're seeing on the far left is they've broken the plate into 36 different zones. So they have the heart of the plate, which is, uh, it's not down the middle, but it's the center of the plate. It's pitches that are 100% for sure strikes. Um, They can be, you know, on the outside part of the plate. They can be on the inside part of the plate. They can be a little up, a little down, but they're, they're generally in the middle of the plate. Um, Then they have the shadow region, which is like, halfway into the strike zone halfway out of the strike zone a little bit more or less um and those are the pitches that pitchers try to throw the vast majority of pitches that you see are thrown in that region and in fact if you go over to the pitch frequency column that we're showing you you can see that mike trout saw 41 percent of all pitches in 2020 um, in that shadow region pitchers are trying to hit the corners and generally they miss a little bit into the strike zone or a little bit out of the strike zone um, but occasionally they go wide and then there's an extra region that is even further outside of the strike zone called the chase region that region is going to be comprised mostly of pitchers trying to throw wipeout pitches pitches that start in the zone on the corner maybe in the shadow region and end in the chase region um, their strikeout pitches they are put away pitches. Sometimes they're misses, of course, um, but they are roughly equal to what you see in the heart of the plates. They're a little bit less. It's about 21 to 28% for Mike Trout last year. And then finally, you have the waist zone pitches that are just nowhere close. Um, and batters really don't want to be swinging at these because unless you're Vladimir Guerrero in his prime, you're probably not producing value on swings here. And maybe even Vladdy didn't, we don't know because um, we didn't have Statcast. But by using those four zones, they're able to break down where a hitter does damage. So you'll see that in 2020, Mike Trout produced nine runs in the heart of the plate. He lost six runs in the shadow region. He produced 10 runs in the chase region and produced five runs in the waste region. But I just want to point out really quickly that when I say produced 15 runs between the waste and chase regions, it's kind of misleading because... And now if you go over to uh, another column there, swing take, you'll see that he took almost all the pitches in the chase and waste regions between the two. He only swung it like, you know, cumulative less than 12%. Um, and what that means is when I say he produced those runs, he really just took pitches. It was a more of a passive action. He wasn't like hitting homers in that region. So um, you have the far left, the zone of a batter broken down into four regions from decreasing levels of uh, usefulness to a hitter. Then you have the frequency with which the pitcher saw pitches in each region of the zone. You have how often they swung and how often they took those pitches. And then on the far right, you have runs produced from swinging on pitches in that zone and runs produced from taking pitches in that zone. So this is a really, really cool tool um, and Sam, I'm wondering, did I miss anything? I kind of just wandered through that.
1: No, I think you did a really good job. Summarizing, I think the last part that you know is an interesting way to break this down is the run value chart on the right, where in each region of the plate, they break down the value between swing runs and take runs. And basically what you're typically going to see is that the take runs are always going to be positive in the... Uh, chase region and the waist region because taking pitches there is basically always going to result in a ball. Whereas the take runs are always going to be basically negative in the heart region because by taking a pitch, you're taking a strike. And similarly, you're usually going to see positive swing runs in the heart region because that's where you're getting pitches that you can really do damage on. Uh, Whereas your swing runs are typically going to be sort of negative in the other regions of the plate because those are pitches that are hard to hit. You're going to make weaker contact, or you're going to swing and miss. Now, one thing that I think is interesting to see is that in 2020, Mike Trout was in total plus nine runs in the heart of the plate, minus six runs in the shadow region. Uh, And in terms of swing runs, he was plus 15 swing runs in the heart of the plate and minus five swing runs in the shadow region. But if you go to the tab above Mike Trout's page, you can look at how he uh, performed in 2019. And if you look in 2019, Mike Trout really produced his value in a different way, where he was really productive in the shadow region. He was plus
0: 18 runs in the shadow region. Filling. And that's that's positive for both swinging and taking pitches. That's so hard to do. I, I've yet, after searching through this, to see someone who's positive for both swings and takes in any region.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's quite impressive. So Mike Trout was... Did a ton of damage in the shadow region, but was actually negative runs in the, in, the, in the heart of the plate where he did create plus 10 swing runs, but he also had minus 13 take runs. The takeaway from that is that Mike Trout was doing a lot of his hitting damage uh, in the shadow region, and he was taking a lot of pitches over the middle of the plate. And because of that, he was losing value because he was sort of just taking strikes but of course he's such a good hitter that he's still able to do damage in these pitcher counts.
0: Well so I think this is this is the most interesting test case of this stat because and first I'll say you know he was he produced a lot of his runs in the shadow region but he actually produced the majority of his runs or I guess a plurality of his runs in the chase region by just literally almost never swinging at chase pitch. He produced 36 runs. Um, But to me, this doesn't say that he took a lot of cock shots, although it does. It says to me that he focused so hard at controlling the corners of the zone, because in previous years, that was a weakness of his, and we'll discuss that in a second. He controlled so hard. Mike Trout notoriously, a guy who tries to get better every year. He focused so hard on controlling the edges of the zones that he actually got over careful and lost a lot of strikes that he could have punished in the heart of the zone. But 2019 Mike Trout by this metric is so interesting because if you go back to 2016, which is the first real year of StatCast data, every single year from 2016 to 2018 and in 2020, he was massive positive runs in the heart of the zone. He was always plus 20 or more in 2016, he was plus 29 runs. And he was always slightly negative um, in the shadow region and less negative than most hitters in the MLB, which is part of what made him so, so great. Um, But he was slightly negative in the chase region. But then you see this crazy thing in 2019 where he is negative in the center region, positive, in the shadow region. And what you see is the cumulative result is that he was the best hitter of his career by this metric. His next best was 2016, where he was plus 56 runs, but he was plus 58 runs um, in 2019 total. And that is just crazy to me that he changed so much as a hitter, had the best season of his career. And then 2020 is a smaller sample size, but seemingly went back to the same hitter. He was plus 15 swing runs in the middle of the plate, minus six take minus five swing runs on the shadow region, minus one take um, plus 12 in the, in the chase region and plus five in the, in the waste region. He basically went back to being the exact same guy after a 2019 where he just did something totally different. It's so weird to see.
1: Yeah, it's, and, and I hope us going through these different years of my trout really shows the power of, both pitch value as a tool and this incredible data visualization of where the pitch values come from on baseball Savannah, it gives you so much information and it doesn't only give you information for batters, but for pitchers as well. So if you look at the top tab, you can change from hitters to pitchers. And if you go to the year 2020, I thought an interesting pitcher to look at would be the reigning rookie of the year, Devin Williams. So if you click on Devin Williams, if you click on the drop-down menu, you could start typing Williams and it'll take you there. I'll give you guys a second to get to Devin Williams page from 2020. If you're there now, what you'll see is that there's something really impressive. You saw with Mike Trout, he was generating so many positive runs in the chase and waste regions. The reason being is that hitters will often generate positive runs here because they're balls and if they take if they take the pitch on the ball, they're just going to generate value from getting in better counts. But Devin Williams actually gave up almost no runs in these regions, zero runs in the chase region, plus one runs in the waste region. So he's basically giving up almost no value uh, in these areas where hitters are usually generating most of their values. And you'll also see that he performed very well in the hard and shadow regions, getting minus seven runs total in both of them. So this just shows sort of the amazing, amazing rookie season that Devin Williams had.
0: And I think that's an interesting trend, Sam, because you might, as a listener, be sitting there thinking a pitcher is going to get hurt in the heart region, but good pitchers don't. If you look at Max Scherzer, for example, um, he in 2019 was minus 23 runs in the heart of the zone. Of course, Jacob deGrom, the absolute goat, was minus 25 runs in 2019. But then you look at some, you know, not so great pitchers, uh, maybe like I don't know, Gio Gonzalez or something. Um, Or let's, uh, let's look at Sandy Alcantara in 2019. I still produce minus 18 runs in the heart of the zone. So um, this actually runs a little bit uh, counter to your intuition. Only extreme cases like um, Tyler Anderson are going to be plus runs in the middle of the zone because he was plus runs everywhere in 2019. But most guys are actually still winning in the heart of the zone. And what this says to me is that you have to throw strikes. Luis Sessa, another guy who's minus runs in the heart of the zone, just barely, but owning the outside part of the plate, you have to throw strikes. The place where pitchers get hurt is out of the zone. And it's so crazy to see it so clear, like name any random pitcher you want. I'm literally just like scrolling here and I'll click on Greg Holland minus eight runs in the heart of the zone. Greg Holland sucked in 2019. He still saved eight runs in the heart of the zone. Pitchers need to stay in the strike zone. Do you have a different takeaway from this?
1: No, yeah, I think it's definitely true. And like that's that's why you're seeing minus runs for everyone because if you, if you throw a strike and they take a strike, that's just positive value right there. You got in a better pitch. You got in a better count. Now you can expand to that shadow region where you're really going to generate the most of your value where you're really seeing pitchers, you know, perform
0: worse. But it's more than that, Sam. It's not just if they take. It's that the value of throwing it in the zone with the threat of a take and the threat of contact is greater than the outcome that a hitter can produce on average for every pitcher.
1: Yeah, exactly, because if if you throw a ball, you got no chance.
0: And let's look at another hitter here. Let's look at Cody Bellinger. Cody Bellinger in 2019, which we generally think of as kind of a down year for Belly.
1: No, Um, he he won MVP in 2019.
0: Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. 2018 was a bit of a down year. That's right. So actually, no, that's great. Thank you for saying that, Sam, because it's really, really interesting to look at the difference between Cody Bellinger's 2018 and 2019. In 2019, Bellinger produced 12 runs in the heart of the plate, 22 on swing, lost nine on takes. He was even on swings and takes in the shadow region, unable to produce any positive value on swinging in the shadow region.
1: But he produced for hitters just breaking even in the shadow region is a good outcome. Like
0: it's not, it's not bad. I, I don't think it's elite, but it's not bad. Um, he produced tremendous value in the chase and waste region. So if you go to twenty eighteen you see that the big issue for him, he produced almost the exact same amount in the exact same way in the chase and waste regions, meaning he knows when not to swing it pitches way out of the zone. The big difference is that the plus 12 runs in the heart go to minus 10 runs. And that's because he just did not produce swinging runs in the heart of the zone. He was not hitting pitches in the heart of the zone well. But even worse than that, he was minus 21 runs on swings in the shadow region. He did not hit anything on the corner of the plate. He did not hit anything in the heart of the plate. Cody Bellinger in 2018, by this metric, basically only produced value by walking.
1: Yeah, or yeah, getting it yeah, pretty much. <laughs> he was pretty much only
0: by walking.
1: above average, hitter, plus 11 runs on the season.
0: Still an above-average hitter, absolutely, but only by walking. One more guy, just because we know you guys are big homers for uh, the big guys here. Let's talk about Bryce Harper. 2019, plus 27 in the heart, minus 20 in the shadow region, absolutely toasted by pitches on the corner, and then a cumulative plus 32 in the chase and waste regions. This man produced 33 swinging runs in the heart of the zone in 2019. Um, In 2018, when he was a better hitter, still a very similar trend. 2017, a similar trend. And 2016, a similar trend. So this is who Bryce Harper is. He mashes balls in the zone. He is not great at discerning pitches on the edge because he's perhaps a bit overeager. But he does know when to lay off pitches that are obviously out of the zone and produces a lot with the walk. To me, this is a really great example of why this statistic is good. I think they encapsulate my intuition of him as a hitter perfectly.
1: Yeah, the Bryce Harper one's interesting because, yeah, it's literally every year he's a disaster in the shadow region and basically a superstar everywhere else. So if he could just clean up, if he could clean up the shadow region, just get back to close to even there, he could be back in his sort of MVP level form.
0: And the reminder for our listeners That's the hard part for every hitter. And this statistic is not breaking new ground in the mind of batting coaches in this regard, I believe. They've always known that the key to being just an outstanding hitter, there's a lot of ways to be a good hitter, but the key to being an outstanding hitter is to do damage in the middle of the plate while controlling the corners, which means swinging at strikes and not swinging at balls. Because don't remember, the shadow region has both balls and strikes in it. And you see Mike Trout do that, minimize damage in the shadow region, maximize damage in the heart region, or the one weird year of 2019 flip those. And you see good, very, very good hitters like Bryce Harper and Cody Bellinger. Um, not really do that. Bellinger doing it a bit more to an extent when he's good. Um, but I think this is a really interesting tool. And I want you guys um, to use this because this is something that we are incorporating into our understanding of players. And this is uh, something that we think will help you as well. So, Keep that in mind. That's our that's our flashback to the stat corner. We hope you guys liked it. Um, if there's something else you want to learn about, we already told you where to find us at the Alonzo Bet on Twitter or thealonzobet at gmail.com. Um, we're gonna use this stat to look at some players here as we talk through MLB news. So free agent signing, Sam. You got a couple on your mind, don't you?
1: Yeah, so I think the probably the biggest one we've had is that the Braves signed Charlie Morden to a one-year, $15 million contract. And Charlie Morton's a really interesting case because he's a guy that's had injury problems the last few years, but he's also a guy who, until this past year, when he was healthy, was up there with one of the best pitchers in the game. Uh,
0: well, for a three-year stretch. Yeah.
1: For a three year stretch from 27 to 2019, 2017 to 2019. I'm talking about the last few years. Uh,
0: right. And really, mostly 2019. Looking at his um, pitch value, he was minus 17 runs in 2017, minus 18 in 2018, and minus 37 in 2019. Quite a good year.
1: Yeah. Uh, but 2020, he took a bit of a step back. You know, he had a, a 4.74 ERA. Now, if you look at his FIP, maybe he got a bit unlucky. It was three, four, five. Uh, but then if you look at his XFIP, he was also maybe a bit lucky on his FIP. A bit lucky in terms of limiting home runs. His XFIP was 4. Uh, but I think, you know, anyone who watched Charlie Morton last year saw a big drop in velocity. Mm-hmm. This is a guy who sort of saw a big increase in velocity as he got older. That's what sort of had turned him in from this journeyman starter to one of you know, the top pitchers in baseball for a few years in his late 30s. So now the question is, is this velocity drop real? And it's a bit weird because if you look at his season velocity, there was a, a definitely a drop from the previous years. But if you look, actually look at the velocity trend over the season, it sort of continually went up over the season. So maybe you say this was a wee- weird year, maybe getting shut down for the pandemic caused him to never really get back to like his full strength. And maybe the Braves are hoping that he can return to this pitcher he was in, in 2019, 2018. But if not, you know, that's a lot of money to pay for an aging starter. He just continues regressing.
0: Absolutely. But I think from the Braves' perspective, they view this very similarly to how they viewed the Cole Hamels signing last year, which obviously did pan out for them because of injury. But they see an opportunity, they think, with Soroka coming back, with Freed breaking out, um, with a bunch of other arm, young, good arms in their rotation, um, Ian Anderson breaking out in the playoffs, they think Charlie Morton could easily be an anchor as our three. And with that in mind, if he stays healthy, I don't care if he continues to regress a little bit. He's still 89th percentile in spin rate, right? He's still 82nd percentile in walk rate. And I think he is a good anchor as a three. If the Braves signed him thinking he's going to be the ace in a World Series run, no, they're out of their mind. They can't start him game one of a playoffs and expect to win. But I do think he makes a very solid anchor as a three, similar to how he was on the Rays last year when they won a World Series. And I do believe that while we won't see um, significant uptick in – you know, pitch velocity. We might see a pretty nominal uptick in it, back to where it was more by 2018 range. We might see a return of his um, pitch mix to 2019, 2018. I I, I like this for well, them. I think it fits their needs very well.
1: I, I agree with you. I think it's a good signing for the Braves, and I, and I actually think the Braves are maybe one of the teams that are most well suited to use Charlie Morgan in that they're very likely going to be able to get into the playoffs. So maybe they can save him a bit and try to, I don't think right. he's going to throw 230 innings in the regular season, but if you can throw a hundred good innings in the regular season and you could get him at full strength in the playoffs, that's that's where they're looking to break through. And like, that's the perfect organizational place to be in in terms of the use of a pitcher like Charlie Morgan it was a similar it was a similar reasoning to me really liking the rich Hill signing for the twins this past year even though that didn't mm-hmm. really great dividends
0: well but it might have I mean we thought about the playoffs as the position where they could capitalize on it and of course um they weren't really ever able to use him in the playoffs. So we don't know. Um, But the Braves most likely will be able to use Charlie Morton. And this is where Charlie Morton started his career, breaking in with the Braves in 2008. Um, He was a bad pitcher for a lot of his career, but he had this breakout um, and he was tremendous in 2019 for the Rays, amassing over six war. And we're going to see what he can do just one year removed from that season with the Braves. Um, I, I really really like this for them so i one that i imagine you like quite a lot i saw trevor may signed with the mets for two years 15.5
1: yeah i'm i'm really happy about this deal the mets need uh the mets need more relief pitchers you know their biggest question mark this past year was starting pitching but you know with stroman coming back uh cinder will probably come back maybe a couple months into the season i still think Bower's a possibility for them in the free agency market. But, you know, I love this Trevor May signing. I think behind Liam Hendricks, he's probably the second best free agent reliever on the market. Been really good for the Twins the past couple of years since he came back from Tommy John surgery. Uh, 2.74 XFIP last year, struck out almost 15 batters per nine. If you look at how he performed uh, by the, the visual metrics we talked about, he's uh, basically at minus six runs last year, minus 16 runs in in 2019. And again, run values accumulate stats, so these minus runs aren't going to be as high for relievers as a really elite starter. He's a guy that does really well by pumping a fastball high in the zone. In 2019, he was minus 14 runs in the heart, minus 15 runs in the shadow. Uh, And he's a guy who's really seen sort of – different than than Charlie Morgan, as he's sort of gotten past his Tommy John surgery. He is a little older. He's 31, but he's seen an uptick in velocity as he's gotten older, maybe using slightly new mechanics. He's seen his spin rate go up the past two years. So while he's already been a really good reliever the last couple of years for the Twins, I think the Mets are also looking at a guy that they could project to keep getting even better. I really love the signing for them. It's at two years, $15.5 million, which I think is, is a good, fair price. And, of course, with Steve Cohen taking the helm, all the Mets fans are sitting here thinking, let's make a big splash, let's get George Springer, let's get Trevor Bauer, let's get JT Wilmuto. And I still think one or two of those are coming, but we also need to fill in the other pieces of the roster, and, and Trevor May is a great piece.
0: I agree with you. I mean, this is a guy who's 99th percentile in whiff percentage, 98th percentile in K, 89th in fastball velocity and 83rd in expected batting average. He, My only concern here, Sam, and and I hate that I have to do this to you because I like this signing for the Mets, but um, if I let you run unchecked on the Mets every time, they'd win the World Series every year. Um, My only concern is that he suffers from some of the same problems that Edwin Diaz does. When they give up contact, it's hard contact. He's 54th percentile in expected slugging percentage. He's 37th percentile in hard hit percentage and 8th percentile in exit velocity. Uh, He's a good pitcher. He's a great signing for them. But with him and Eddie in the bullpen, there is that possibility that they both just have years where they get absolutely Rush despite striking out a lot of guys, despite having great stuff, despite looking good, things just don't go their way. That would kind of be a disaster for them.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's always, and, and, you know, the thing you always have to remember about relief pitchers is they are extremely high variance. You'll see guys be absolutely dominant for two or three years and just lose it. So, you know, these signings are never sure things, but. As far as the relief pitchers on the market, I think the Mets got one of the best ones out there. I still think Liam Hendricks is, is number one. But uh.
0: agree with you 100%. So the other one that's kind of interesting is that for some reason, the Royals signed Mike Miner in a uh, two year, $18 million deal. Don't be surprised that he gets more than Trevor May here. He's a starting pitcher who the rate, you know, is greater for. He had a really rough season last year. Um, But in 2019, he had a 3.59 ERA, although his FIP suggested he was not that good. In 2017, he had a 2.55 ERA with a 2.62 FIP, although his XFIP was still 3.6. Um, he's never amassed more than the four-war he got in 2019. Uh, it uh, Mike Miner's good. Okay, like if the Braves had signed Mike Minor, I'd be like, Oh, you know, they're locking down that four spot. I like it again. I don't really get what the Royals want from him, Sam. What do what do you make of this?
1: No, I agree. I mean, like I like I'm not my reaction isn't like, oh, two years, $18 million is bad for Mike Minor. I think that's actually a pretty fair price for a guy. No, I'm
0: shocked that no one would give him more. For a
1: guy who, who can eat innings, who can be a solid three, four starter for you, who's really only like a year removed from kind of being in the fringe Cy Young discussion with the Rangers. Mm-hmm. The question is like, what, like, the Royals continually seem to fail to realize that they're not good. And like, <laughs> like, oh, we're going to go get a piece and try to contend. It's like, sometimes you just got to try to, you know, take a step back, say we're going to rebuild, try to, try to build your prospects, try to build, you know, try to play some young guys. And maybe what the Royals see in Mike Minor is getting a good price and a guy who, if he gets a bit of a resurgence in the beginning of the season, they can flip for a year and a half of value and maybe get some good prospects back. So maybe if they like him, they're thinking about him as a possible trade ship at the trade deadline. And then maybe you can start to understand their reason.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point, Sam. I, just, I guess I really don't have a good grasp on if teams... Like really do that if they say okay here's a, a bargain for what we believe he is in the market we have the money to spend so even if it maybe hampers our development slightly right now we think it could provide long term benefit I I don't know uh, that's high level um you know cord connection I'm not 100 percent sure that's what they do but just to prove our point here like looking at their team sure they have some good players like I. Jorge Soler is obviously good. Whit Merrifield is very good. He's their best player. Um, Hunter Dozier is serviceable. Salvador Perez is still better, one of the better offensive catchers in baseball. Um, their bullpen is barren. Their rotation is basically Danny Duffy and Mike Miner. Like, everybody else is super sus. Although, uh, I will be honest with you guys, I wouldn't be shocked to see either Brad Keller or Chris Bubich have, like, a three-war season next season. Um, so I know that's not a crazy prediction and I'm not predicting it necessarily, but like, I, 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 people maybe don't know how average some of these pitches are like none of them were tremendous, but some are like real major league pitchers. Um, but like they don't play defense. They don't really like get on base. Well, Their starting rotation and their bullpen's not great. So, um, Maybe you're right, Sam. That that's that makes sense to me, at least. Uh, the other piece of news in the MLB... Of course... It... Oh, sorry. Do
1: you... I'll, I'll just say, like, of course, it's being charitable to the Royals from the way their front offices acted in the last few years that, like, we're trying to make sense of their moves. Like, I think yeah. they continually failed to self-evaluate the place their franchise is at. And that's why they're in the position they're in
0: right now. Agreed a hundred percent. But let's see, you know, only time will tell with things like this, but another just little piece, we're going to go into a bunch of non-tenders and explain to you what that means, but another little piece in the transaction puzzle here, the Dodgers trade uh, a player to be named later for Corey Knebel of the Milwaukee Brewers. Um, This is a guy who honestly like was injured last year uh and has had his ups and downs at one point he was a premier closer in baseball I mean at one point he straight up had 39 saves in 2017 he's had Fips under three um twice he's been at three once and he's produced two eight war as a, a reliever he's been very very good he's but recently he's been bad the only reason that I even think this is noteworthy is because this is exactly the type of guy the Dodgers go out and get. And then he's like a top five reliever in baseball for a year, right? Like they go out, they trade a player to be named later for him. He has like a nothing salary and then randomly he's their setup guy. And he's like devastating.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's totally possible. And again, as I was saying, you know, I'm being charitable to read, you know, smart decision-making into the Royals, you're always reading smart decision-making into the Dodgers. So if they make a move, you're, you're always going to think they have a good right. reason for it. And maybe they have some met- internal metric that makes them think a Corey can resurgence is a possibility. Uh,
0: and they get that benefit of the doubt because they've proven that their methods of analyzing players are more effective than a lot of what we've seen from some other teams. So, with that, uh, we we are running a bit here, and we do need to get to non-tenders. So let's talk about some that like we really care about. Sam, is there one, maybe two, maybe three that really jumped out at you?
1: Yeah. So I mean, to be clear, non-tenders are basically teams have the option of offering an you know an arbitrated contract uh, to these players for for one year, and they decided against it typically because they view. The money that they're going to have to pay in arbitration is greater than they value the player. Basically, I'll just say you saw some guys get non-tendered this year that you're just not typically seeing. They're good major league players. I'm talking Eddie Rosario, Archie Bradley, Kyle Schwarber, David Dahl. Adam Duvall just hit 16 home runs this year. In a a
0: 60-game season, folks, he hit the equivalent of 32-odd homers.
1: No, that's, that's more than that. Thirty, it would be thirty-two and one twenty.
0: Yeah, yeah, he fine. He is the equivalent of forty-five odd overs
1: here. Uh, Hansel Robles, Carlos Rodell, Matt Whistler, Mike Alfranco, Nomar Mazzara. I mean, these are none of them are superstars, but they're all good major league players. And I, you know, I think what this really demonstrates is that there's more of a financial crunch than we've even guessed. If teams aren't willing to pay, you know, someone like Eddie Rosario like seven or eight million dollars to be on their team in a season.
0: No, Eddie Rosario probably would have gotten close to fifteen million dollars in arbitration. Really, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, no, our arbitration is is tough. Um, I don't know if it's tough. I think it maybe values players accurately, but. Like guys get twenty million dollars in arbitration. Yeah, uh, keep, keep going, and I'll I'll find you an example of some weird arbitration yeah. deals.
1: But uh, but yeah, the guys, you know, some of the guys, I was really surprised to see Schwarber. Uh, but the Cubs really seem to be like they're cutting all possible costs. Uh, Archie Bradley's—he's a—I know you love Archie Bradley. He's a—he's a really good
0: reliever. I. He's a really solid reliever, and he, frankly, like. Uh, relievers are, it's not that they're um, like super valuable on the open market. They're valuable, not super valuable. Um, but arbitration was not going to award him that much money. This is a guy who you're seriously looking like six, seven, maybe eight tops million dollars to keep. Um, this is a guy who has always kept uh, homers in the yard. He has generally pitched pretty well. Um, for a reliever. And last season was like his best season since 2017. I cannot wrap my head around why the Reds, who need bullpen help more than, well, I guess now they need some starting pitching help again with Trevor gone. But I think more than anything on the field, the Reds need help in their bullpen. Why they would not tender Archie a contract is mind-boggling to
1: me. So, Rosario, I just looked up. Ken Rosenthal tweeted uh, after he was he was non-tendered that his projected arbitration salary was $9.6 million. So
0: Really? Okay.
1: Yeah. So, some, so something like the $10 million range, which, you know, that's obviously some money for a team to pay. But Eddie Rosario, I mean, he's a guy that can just, you know, sleep his way into 30 bombs. He doesn't walk. Right. He doesn't walk at all. And he's maybe not a, a great fielder, but... You know, he's a major league – he's a good major league hitter. These aren't guys you
0: typically see getting – He's consistent WRC plus over 110. Like, you want that on your team for for $9 million. And Archie's projected – you know, I clearly had my scale wrong. Archie's projected was $4.3 million. Like, how how could the Reds not want to pay that?
1: Yeah, it's – I mean, I think it's really what this is is a demonstration of, you know, how tight a lot of these teams' budgets are. And it's really going to give a huge advantage, you know, for teams that are willing to maybe spend what players are worth this offseason.
0: Mm-hmm. Able to get some bar- it's gonna be a it's gonna be a bloodbath in free agency this yeah. offseason.
1: And, and we're and I the free agency market move incredibly, incredibly slowly.
0: Exactly. I was going to say, that's also just evidence by how slowly the free agent market is moving. Um, But let's talk about two other guys here who I think are slightly harder cases. So these two guys are Kyle Schwarber, who, you know, if you're a casual fan, you may be thinking, oh, my God, I thought this guy's a superstar. But the fact of the matter is, like, Schwarber is an okay player, but his peak career war is 3.2 in 2018. Um, he's never had a WRC plus over 120. He's, he's a bit overrated because of some of the heroics of the world series. And because he came in, um, in 2015 swinging a super hot bat over 69 games. Um, but the Cubs don't tender him. And before I get to the other guy who I actually think is basically in the same boat, I I have a buddy who works for the Cubs and, and I'll say, um, just off the bat, that he, he does scouting. He's not in baseball analytics, so he's not in a position to tell me like inside scoop. This is why the Cubs made this decision, but from his understanding and like his knowledge on the organization, his thought is that um, it kind of comes from just the feeling that the Cubs have to go a different way. You know, they also non-tendered Albala Mora Jr. Who's not a good hitter, but is a premier center fielder in the league. And the Cubs had long used him um, as like a defensive anchor in the outfield. This is just kind of, I think, Jed Hoyer starting to take over the Cubs realizing, you know, we're not going to win again like this, but we're not helping ourselves long term. Um, Let's try something new. The only question I have um, about this and the other guy, and I'll get to the other guy again, is why not trade him sooner? So. With that, I'll reveal that the other person I'm thinking of is David Dahl, Rockies outfielder, can legitimately defensively play all three positions, different from Kyle Schwarber, obviously. But a guy who has shown a lot of promise, WRC Plus is 113, 110, 110 in his three full seasons. Sorry, zero full seasons, but three fullest seasons, 2016 through 2019. Never played more than 100 games in a season but profiled out to be a massive, uh, you know, multi-tool player with speed and power and contact and just still so young. You know what I mean? Like he's still 26 years old and there's so much left to go in this guy's career. The Rockies are in a rebuilding phase and they had his projected arbitration, Sam, at two and a half million dollars.
1: Yeah. It's just like you you just don't give away a player with any potential for that cost.
0: Exactly. This one of all of them is the most mind boggling to me. Cause again, David Dahl may never play a full season of baseball. He may always be hurt, but at two and a half million dollars for the next season, you might as well risk it for one more season. Maybe it's the season he breaks out and as the Rockies, you trade him at the deadline. Maybe it's the season he breaks out and you get a wild card spot. Like, this one was crazy, but both of them are organizations deciding they're going to go a different way. I'm wondering if you have thoughts about the pair or each individual move, Sam. Um, so I, I think
1: with the shorter one, you know, I see how the Cubs as a franchise might be spinning it as, you know, it's time to move in a different direction. You know, this court this course timeframes over, but I see it as purely a, a number crunching move. Like, Schwarber is you know he had a down season in 2020 he's still you know not a superstar hitter but an above average major league hitter i think and you know i i just think it's it's purely purely the financial numbers i think they're trying to get
0: who's who's crunching two and a half sam
1: the the doll move is more inexplicable to me and it's just I mean, the, Rock, you know, the Rockies, I think, are up there with the Royals in being an incredibly poorly run organization who, who don't seem to understand how to judge talents or, or what they have. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm somewhat done trying to understand what the Rockies have done. It's, it's somewhat incredible the amount of great core players that they've had over the past decade.
0: It's unbelievable, like, yeah. They've
1: been completely incapable of building even anything of a contender around. Um. Yeah, you know, they're they're it's it's malpractice going on there.
0: And for reference, guys, like Schwarber was at seven million projected arbitration. So, like, I can get that one maybe a little bit more because I do think you're crunching the number seven on your spreadsheet. But it's still low. It's still low enough that I would sign him again. And. And then you get to two and a half and it's just like, how the heck could you not give this guy, you know, two and a half million dollars? That's insane. But Sam, what I want to do here, because we are running out of time, we want to get you guys out of here. I just want to run through a couple, you know, free agents or sorry, non-tendered guys, newly free agents that we have here uh, on the site and see... What you think, would you have made the same move? Um, yes, no, maybe a little bit of why. If you're lucky, I'll even chime in um, with my opinion here. So uh, with that, let's go to our first one. We mentioned him in the past, Adam Duvall projected to get $4.4 million. Do you pull the plug here, Sam, or do you pull the trigger and take him back for your team?
1: I mean, like I said, he like Duvall has been a very good hitter in the last couple of years. The thing is, for the Braves, you know, he does probably end up just mostly sitting on the bench. Like, I don't think he's going to be starting all that much for them. Mm-hmm. If you're in the Braves position, he's a, he's a tremendous bench bat to ha- have. I'm paying him for that. But, you know, if they have some budget, I can see how they could say, we'd rather spend this on some relief help or, or some starting pitching depth.
0: I, I agree. As long as this isn't a reflection of his value and it's more of a reflection of where the Braves want to put their money and where they believe their strength in the farm system is, I don't really have a problem with this. Um, a guy you know well, Sam, Hansel Robles, projected a 3.85, non-tendered by the Angels.
1: You know, Robles has been, you know, I think an underrated reliever throughout his career. Now, he pitched 16 innings this past year with the Angels and they were terrible, but I mean – in 2019, he went 72 innings, a 248 ERA, 288 fit, a little higher, X fit than 39. But I mean, he's a good reliever. What did you say the, the projection was?
0: It was uh, 3.85, which is steep. But for me, like.
1: Yeah, I mean, I keep. It. The
0: Angels obviously need help in the bullpen. The Angels are disgusting in the bullpen. I don't know how they're walking out on this guy for 4M a year. Like. I mean, he is, he is a nightmare, as you know, for a Mets fan. To watch this guy is, is to give yourself cardiac arrest. But at the end of the day, he mostly gets the job done, mostly.
1: Yeah, he's, a, he's an underrated reliever, I think.
0: Okay, so what about Hanser Alberto at 2.3? Hmm.
1: Again, like I said, I, I just don't like giving up major league players for, for 2.3. Now, or...
0: Especially a guy who showed a lot of promise last year.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, he's he's never been much, but, you know, he's,
0: you know... I'm, or I'm sorry, I, I don't mean last year, I mean the year before. Last year, he was pretty boo-boo, but the year before, you know, he truly wasn't that bad in, in 2019. Um, I mean, with the
1: Orioles, you know, he's probably not part of their future, so maybe they're thinking, like, we'd rather just get evaluations on as many of our young players as possible. So like, Mm -hmm. I give them at bats. And if that's, if that's, if that's the perspective, then I guess I get it.
0: Yeah. He's only 28. So I personally would have signed him, but I can wrap my head around this one as well. Here's one that's tough for me um, because I both get it and don't at the same time. Carlos Rodon projected at four and a half M. And I see the white Sox non-tendering him because they say he's not going to work out which I agree, he's not going to work out as a starter, but I've thought that for over, you know, a year now, maybe two full years. This is a guy who's a prime candidate to go to the bullpen. Um, We see low fastball velocity and low fastball spin, but we see an uptick in early innings of the game for him. I think if he could transition to the pen, he actually has a lot of potential here. And one way to visualize this, guys, is if you go to – um baseball savant again and just search carlos rodon and scroll almost all the way to the bottom you'll see a breakdown of frequency of pitches by speed he has one of the widest fastball distributions of any pitcher in baseball he's thrown his fastball as slow as 85 miles an hour and as fast as 100 like this is a guy who to me it's very clear he's got basically a bimodal distribution the first two innings and the last five innings Um, and if you could move him to the pen, I think there's a lot of value here. Um, but I, again, get why the White Sox who've tried him out as a starter so long, clearly don't see his future in the pen, um, have decided to cut bait at four and a
1: half. You also expect the, what was considered the pitch that really made him, you know, one of the top pitching prospects in baseball for many years, his slider, you really could see that play up in the pen. So I I totally agree with your take that you know why why this seems like a perfect candidate to change from a failed starter to a relief ace why not give it a shot
0: but you know i i all, then again like as the white Sox, maybe they even think this but they think well four and a half million dollars a lot to spend for a reclamation project yeah. right like there's no guarantee that that transition will work and so maybe they say look we'll sign him to one and a half and see if we can put him in the pen um what about Michael Franco at four and a half? Michael Franco, a guy um, who's really been in the league for quite some time since 2014 and has at times been quite good 129 WRC plus in 2015, 104 and 18, 106 and 20. Um, so, really, just that one great season, but the bombs have been there. Um, the RBIs have been there. The problem, really, in general, has been the K rate, uh, or I guess yeah. more precisely, the hard hit rate. He's not King as much as you'd think, actually.
1: Yeah, I, I, I can't believe Michael Franco has been in the league since since 2014. I I know. Think of him as like a young player. Uh, I know. Me too. Wow. Yeah. I, honestly, I I feel like I I was so up on Michael Franco because he was on the Phillies for so many years and I felt like he was totally lost, I, and I didn't even – I sort of had no sense of how he had done on the Royals this past year. I just looked him up. 106 WRC+. Again, yeah, he doesn't strike out, and his walk rate, while not good, is not that bad. And he's shown the ability to hit the ball hard in certain spots. Like, I, honestly, I'm surprised his career has never worked out.
0: Um yeah, you know what it is, though, Sam? It's those years of 70 WRC plus where he maybe mashes 20 home runs, but he's just an awful hitter somehow. Um, you know, mostly stemming from uh, you see a direct correlation between his WRC plus and his Babip. I'm going to be totally honest, which to me says this is a guy who, and it's an incomplete data set, obviously, but to me, it says there's a chance that this is a guy who still has the potential to be a very productive um, major league player. And I think that this, more than anything, sheds the Mike Minor signing in the light that you described, because while Mike Miner definitely could reclaim some former glory and starting pitchers have a lot of value at the deadline, Michael Franco clearly has a ceiling, a hard ceiling that he's not going to bust. He's not going to be a consistent one hundred and twenty plus WRC player. He's never going to amass more than probably three war in his career, even if he breaks out. Um, they don't see the same value in the trade market, is how I'm reading this, and so you know they're not really playing to compete. They maybe have some guys in the system. They say we don't we don't see a reason to keep this guy around, even at four and a half.
1: Yeah, and. He's a guy, yeah. Like I said, I'm he's a guy that I, I thought would be some not a superstar, but a serviceable major league player. And he's sort of failed to reach that
0: somehow. Me too. I agree 100%. So the next guy is interesting. Um, Nomar Mazara. Geez, Nomar Mazara, who uh, really has all the tools but has never put it together. He's never had a WRC plus over 100. The Rangers cut bait on him after 2019. The White Sox take him for his, his worst season ever, I'll, you know, albeit a shortened season. Um, more than 100% of his war was produced in defense in 2020. Um, and I get this because of the price tag at 56 um, but it says two things to me. One, it says arbitration is minorly broken, that he's projected at 5.6 and Mike Franco at four and a half. But the other thing it says is that he just, the, the free agent market using Nomar Mazar as a proxy is truly going to be a bloodbath because this is a guy who I easily could see getting seven or eight billion on a one year deal. Um, and the fact that he's not even getting arbitration offered when they project 5.6 seems to me that it's going to be tough if you're not a superstar this offseason. How
1: old do you think Nomar Mazar
0: is? Just looked at it. Um, well, I'm not looking. I-, I think Nomar Mazar is 27 years old.
1: He's still only 25, which is – it feels like he's been around forever. I mean, he's been around for five years.
0: 2016, yeah. He, But he's young. We knew that because he came into the league at – I think it was 19. I guess I could have done the math there, but
1: the thing is, uh it just seems like the offense is never going to be here. If anything it's regressing. His strikeout percentage has gone up every year in the of his career. His walk percentage seems to be going down. Like I don't know what he's doing, but it's not working and like eventually like yeah, having the talent, still being young, those are all reasons why I think people are going to keep taking shots on him, but eventually you got to do it once.
0: Yeah, I agree with you 100%, but I, someone will take a shot on him this year and my feeling is at 6'4", 215, lefty who can play defense and has all the tools. You know, he's got a he's got a pretty good looking swing. It's a bit long. Um but he's got plenty of pop. He's got plenty of contact. I think he maybe just needs the right hitting coach. Um, and I, I'm not ready to give up on Nomar Mazzara, but you're right, Sam, until he does something, I'm not sure I could give him 5.6 either knowing the unbelievable depth that the White Sox have right now. Um, let's go to one that uh, actually I cannot find an explanation for. Jose Ureña, um from the Marlins gets declined at 3.8 projected in arbitration. What do you make of this?
1: pretty surprised i mean i mean he's not been good but he's been like in innings he's
0: been worth he's been worth under four mil as a starter
1: yeah but you know his era has been over five the last two years
0: um and all of his advanced metrics are bad he's 13th in exit velocity 22nd and hard hit 15 in xwoba 15 in xera five percent in k rate the only thing he does well is he throws the heater But to your point, Sam, this is a guy who, you know, going back from 2018 through 174 innings and 169 innings in back-to-back seasons, that's valuable.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, the Marlins, again, maybe they're just saying he's not part of, we only have him one more year. He's not part of the long-term plan here. So let's just let's use his innings to evaluate some other young starter in our organization. Too.
0: But the only problem is I know that Don Mattingly believes they can compete again. Um, But I also know that he believes their organizational depth is in pitching. Um, So, and he is level-headed about it. So I think your outlook may be correct. He may be saying, look, we can compete if our young pitchers um, excel this season, but we're not going to mortgage our future for it. So again, I, they definitely should have paid him that, but um, I can, I guess I can grapple with it. What about this one, Sam? Ryan Stanek, the consummate opener, declined after seasons of a three ERA, then a four ERA. Last season, he had a seven ERA over only 10 innings pitched. um, And the Marlins said, bye-bye. We don't want to either. Guess what his projected arbitration was? What? 800K.
1: Yeah. Well, that, that is kind of surprising after. T-
0: How are you dropping a guy at 800? just drop him later in the season. That's nothing. That's 300 K above the league minimum. Yeah. What the hell is that? It's less than 300 K above league minutes, 250. What is that? This makes no sense to me. And it's just boneheaded. Yeah, that is pretty surprising. I gotta say. Like literally just drop him later and it will not cost you a dime. Um, Let's look at, I'm going to skip Travis Shaw because I agree with it. I don't think it's interesting. Let's look at Jose Martinez at 2.1 million. The Rays obviously traded Matthew uh, Tador Libertador or Libertadori. And Sam pointed out poignantly before the show that, of course, that deal also included Randy Rosarena. But at the time, we basically saw that as Jose Martinez and some and some mediocre prospects for a top prospect in the Cardinals organization. Now we have the Rays non-tendering Jose Martinez. What do you make of this?
1: I mean, he was he's a guy that's gotten worse every year of his career. WRC Plus has gone, you know, starting in his full season, 136, 126, 101, 57. Strikeout rates gone up every year. Walk rates stayed around 10%. And, yeah, I mean, he's just – he's kind of lost it. So – and the Rays are a team that I think they're on a tight budget. They know they can get a lot out of players that they identify. So they traded for Jose Martinez. Clearly he hasn't been what they thought he was going to be. And, again, I'm willing to give more sort of leeway to the Rays for their decisions. And I say, you know, they probably do have a more efficient way to spend the money if they have a budget.
0: Right. I give the Rays the benefit of the doubt here, 100%. But I will say, I don't know exactly what you're looking at. To me, I see a 2016 that doesn't count. I see a 2017 and 2018 that are basically identical. Um, And then I see a down year in 2019 and only 98 plate appearances in 2020. Uh, To me... I still think that Jose Martinez very well could be that close to 300 or above 300 hitter with just a smidge of pop, um, who knows how to take a walk and not at a elite clip, but if he's hitting seven or eight in your lineup, especially if you're an American league team, who's not a powerhouse, I I don't, I don't know. Um, I think he's worth 2.1 mil still uh, because his ceiling truly is like a 125 to 130 WRC plus player, which he's been before in his career. And again, I give the Rays the benefit of the doubt, but I think there's space for this guy in the MLB. Um,
1: a fair point. And I think I probably would have been more critical of the move if anyone else but the Rays
0: had done it. Agreed. Agreed. So the last guy is another super interesting test case by a team that just is so lost. Um, The Angels, oh, no, I'm sorry. He went to the Reds last season. Um, The Reds non-tender Brian Goodwin, who, don't get me wrong, like Brian Goodwin is nothing to write home about, but his projected arbitration uh, salary was 2.7 mil. Uh, You know, he's a player who amassed almost two war in 2019. Um, He can play defense, although the metrics are kind of all over on him. Um, he can hit at times, he K's way, 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 way too much, um, but he can hit for some pop, uh, he plays decent defense, and he has some speed. I like. I don't want the Angels to start him in the outfield every day, but I don't think $2.7 is unreasonable to spend on a fourth or fifth outfielder, and he is easily that.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, but again, I mean, I think sort of the, the lesson as we've gone through each player is that teams are trying to pinch every penny they can this offseason. And we've seen it in a lot of guys who in a typical season would not have been non-tender. They were. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the free agent contracts are just, yeah, outside of maybe Bauer, Springer, Real Muto, they're, they're not going to be great.
0: And I agree. Yeah um well just before we go let me talk about one other fourth or fifth outfielder domingo santana signed a contract to play for the yakut swallows in japan so watch him over there in the japanese baseball league um he of course uh won me a fantasy season one year so he'll always have a special place in my heart but has been an absolute stiff the last few so good luck domingo maybe you'll be on the mel rojas jr comeback tour in a couple of years but With that, folks, uh, we want to sign off here. We want to wish you guys, um, you know, a very belated happy Thanksgiving and thank you for listening to us. Uh, We're thankful for all of our listeners and we, you know, we want to hear more from you guys. We're hearing a lot from Vince from New Jersey, of course. Um, We're hearing a lot from some of our other dedicated listeners, but some of you on the fringes there listening to an episode or two, tell us what you're thinking about. Tell us what you want to know. Tell us what you want us to improve on. Um again you can find us on Twitter, the Alonzo Bet uh, or find us on Gmail, the Alonzo Bet at gmail.com. So with that, thank you guys very much for showing up today. Uh Sam, I'll give you the last word if you have anything to say.
1: Uh not much, just that I am excited for someone to finally. I mean, we've talked about a couple of free agency signings. When's when's the first big domino gonna fall? I, I want to see it happen.
0: Good question. Um, Yeah, I want to see it happen too. I think with the status of the market, as we've discussed ad nauseum today, um, it's going to take a couple more weeks at least as teams jockey over the extra year of control versus two, three, four uh, annual average value. So um, we'll keep you up to date though. We're going to be following these free agent signings. We are locked in right now uh, and we look forward to having you guys back next week. So with that, thank you very much for coming today. Uh, For the Alonzo bet, we're your hosts. I'm Aaron.
1: And I'm Sam. Signing off, folks.